Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. My name is Sam Maxwell, and welcome to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the research process of the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series I am developing. Today, I am glad to be joined by the writer, once more, of the greatest ballpark ever, Ebbetsfield and the Story of the Brooklyn Dodgers, author Bob McKee. Bob, thanks for joining me again. Sam, pleasure to be with you. Well, and, and this one we're going to get very, very specific uh, uh, about the Abbotts family, and, and we're going to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, uh, the eighteen, the end of the 1850s, as baseball is starting to take off a bit, uh, teams are starting to organize, rules are starting to get a little bit more defined. There is a man born in New York City by the name of Charlie H. Abbotts, and uh, so why don't we start from the beginning of, of uh, his his life? All right, and uh, Charlie was born actually just a, a couple of months before the city of New York started issuing birth certificates. He was born uh, October 29, 1859, and his name was entered in a ledger uh, announcing his uh, announcing his birth. And um, his his father was uh, a restaurateur. Uh, his family was um, an old uh, banking family, an old Dutch family. They'd been in New York for for quite a while, and uh, they did have a uh, a family uh, business property on on Broad Street in New York. But uh, his father had worked as um, as a restaurateur, and Charlie actually went to school maybe till about the third grade. He'd showed some aptitude in mathematics. And thereafter, the family moved out to Astoria, and Charlie had his first job uh, marking Joyce on the end of a schooner in Astoria Bay. Wow. So how did he get involved in baseball? Well, his first involvement with, in baseball was actually through the auspices of uh, his older brother. Um, he wound up uh, being a charter employee of the of the Brooklyn Baseball Club when it was first formed uh, before the 1883 season. And the team uh, played its very first game, in fact, in Prospect Park because its field, uh, Washington Park, which was about uh, two miles due south of uh, the Brooklyn Anchorage or the Brooklyn Bridge, wasn't ready yet. So they actually played their first game in Prospect Park in, in 1883. And uh, after the team, uh, and that, by the way, was just uh, two weeks before the Brooklyn Bridge opened uh, on May 24th of 1983 when they did play their first game. And uh, uh, Charlie's first job was really doing just about everything he could, taking tickets, uh, he printed up scorecards, a uh, general handyman, and uh, he just uh, got more and more responsibility as time went on and became a very popular person in Brooklyn. So what exactly do you think it was his number one characteristic that, that led to him climbing the ladder? Well, I think he was just very entrepreneurial, very energetic, and very committed to his work. Um, he had gotten married fairly young. He married... Uh, Amelia, better known as Minnie Broadband, in 1877. They had their first child, Charles Jr., in, in 1878. So at this point, he's 18 years old, Minnie's 17 years old, and 
uh, he was doing all sorts of things, whether it was uh, selling novels door-to-door, selling books door-to-door. Um, he worked as a, an architectural draftsman uh, for a time. He worked on the plans for Niblo's Garden in New York. Uh, so he had had sort of this indefatigable uh, entrepreneurial uh, streak, and it was evidenced in the, you know, in the baseball enterprise as well. And he embraced it, and in turn, the owners, um, uh, chiefly Ferdinand Abel, who was the money man behind the Dodgers franchise, and and uh, uh, Doyle, who was the day-to-day operations guy, um, they they were uh, uh, very fond of Charlie, and they gave him opportunities to. Uh, expand his portfolio within the organization. And part of what he did at Washington Park, too, was find other suitable activities uh, for the use of the facility in the off-season. So that by 1888, he was, uh, you know, setting up toboggan slides in the wintertime at Washington Park. Oh, it's something that I'm trying to picture in my head, and I wish I could just go out there this coming winter <laughs> and see that. Uh, so it, what do you think, what was the biggest jump he made? Uh, what, what, what would you say was where it really became his team? Well, uh, certainly that he was put in charge of the team in 1898. Uh, and coincidentally, it happened to be at a time when um, uh, Brooklyn also was consolidated into Manhattan, and uh, one of the uh, one of the owners uh, had been quite ill, and uh, essentially Charlie was just. It was decided that at, at 38 years old, he was the he was the guy to run the franchise, and um, as a result, January 1st, 1898, Charles uh, Charles Ebbets becomes. Uh, the president of of the Brooklyn Baseball Club and the the Dodgers had uh, joined the National League in in 1890. Um, so by this time, uh, Charlie's already fairly well known around the league, and uh, obviously his uh, his uh, uh, leadership from that point forward becomes very critical for the franchise. Now, I know that Charlie was a little bit into politics. He was in city council for a little bit. Uh, what was his opinion about the merger of the, of the, uh, the cities? He was, uh, he was in favor of consolidation. Uh, he, he ran for the state assembly in, um, in 1895, was elected, uh, ran for the state senate in 1896 in a Republican year. Charlie was a Democrat. He was uh, defeated. In 1897, he ran for uh, what was at the time the Brooklyn Common Council, uh, but uh, and the election was held. The ballot was certified by the Secretary of State to be an election for the Brooklyn Common Council. But of course, by the time it uh, took time to, uh, by the time it came time for him to take his seat in 1898, it was uh, the New York City City Council. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
his uh, he was active in politics, uh, knew all the players, and one of the players that he did come to know, of course, was uh, Steve McKeever, who would become a very important person in, in Charlie's life and in the life of the Brooklyn franchise, along with his brother Ed, later on in uh, 1912 when Charlie was seeking to build Ebbets Field. Right, exactly. Uh, and we'll, we will certainly get to that. Uh, but let's stick with 1898. Um, he is uh, a man close to 40. Uh, and so what, what is Charlie Evans Jr. up to at this point as his dad is, is starting to get more responsibility? And and, well, uh, his, and Jr. is about 20-something years old. Right, right. Essentially, Charlie Ebbets Jr. is about 20 years old, and his his dad is seeking to uh, to groom him at at this point in time, just uh, uh, as ultimately an heir to to this franchise. Uh, Charlie had had moved to uh, First Street, and um, uh, it, it's very interesting because when you look at the at the records, he actually even lived in the Bronx for a time in uh, 1880. Lived on Alexander Avenue in the Bronx at a spot where the Deegan uh, Expressway uh, goes over Alexander Avenue today. That's where the house was that Charlie once uh, lived in. But you know, by the uh, by the time uh, obviously, of course, he comes to Brooklyn, moves uh, to Brooklyn, and he uh, lived on First Street. Uh, fairly close to where the ballpark was, and uh, so they're very much a part of uh, Park Slope life. And uh, uh, Charlie is, of course, uh, giving Charlie Jr. every opportunity to uh, to grow into the uh, uh, franchise in terms of his responsibility with it and all of that. So uh, very family conscious, and of course conscious of his. Uh, uh, the the necessity for his firstborn son to do well, or at least he had so hoped. Right, of course. And we, and we will certainly explore that a little bit, but uh, how how many kids did Ebbets have? Uh, so it was uh, Charles Jr. He had uh, May. Um, I'm, I'm thinking now there were um, uh, two daughters. There was Genevieve, there was May, uh, Charles Jr., and... Um, uh, I believe there was one other daughter. It's slipping my mind right now because mm-hmm. uh, uh, Genevieve and May are the, are the ones that are uh, that come to mind from all the the ballpark photographs. Right, of course. And Genevieve ended up marrying uh, somebody who was on the board uh, by the as the 1930s came along. Uh, Joe Gildehue, I believe, is that uh, Gillado. Gillado, excuse me. Yeah, Joe Gillado. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in in terms of uh, 1898, I, I, Charlie. Uh, managed the team for a year. Am I correct? Well, not quite for that long. Uh, uh-huh. He went down to the bench for a while um, and uh, did manage for a number of games, and it disabused him of the notion that uh, managing was really a possibility for him. <laughs> uh, the team had at this point uh, just come back from spending a number of years at Eastern Park in the East New York section of Brooklyn reestablished itself in a new Washington Park in 1898. That was the first executive decision that Charlie made. And the new Washington Park was on the northwest corner of uh, 3rd Street as opposed to the old Washington Park, which was on the southeast corner of uh, 3rd Street. And um, uh, it was his first executive decision to move the team back from Eastern Park in East New York to a place 
uh, in Park Slope uh, or actually closer to the Gowanus where the team was more accessible. Right, so, exactly. Uh, thereafter, in it was the time of syndicate baseball. Uh, thereafter, we've got uh, essentially the Baltimore team uh, merging its fortunes with the Brooklyn team and a lot of uh, Baltimore stars under the auspices of uh, uh, the old Orioles manager, Ned Hanlon, coming up to Brooklyn. And uh, that merged team wound up winning uh, National League pennants in succeeding years in 1899 and 1900. And uh, after that, though, the Dodgers fell into uh, some bleak years uh, for probably, you could say, till they won the pennant in, in 1916. What What do you think, uh, how did some of Charlie's decisions directly affect uh, the, the losing ways of the Dodgers in the early part of the 20th century? Well, Charlie had... Um, uh, certainly his his big challenge always was getting the kind of financing that he needed and the kind of money that he needed. Um, so it, he was faced with a lot of challenges, a lot of financial challenges during those years. And um, as a result, he, he tried to get uh, all the horses he could and put them on the field, but uh, uh, didn't always work out that well. So uh, as a result, his team basically was... Uh, for the most part, you know, a, a sixth-place team in an, in an 18 league, um, and um, it it was not easy. But he was certainly um, uh, of the opinion that the fans should have the best team that he could possibly put on the field. So he did his best to ensure that uh, he could get as much talent as he could. But it wasn't didn't really come together for him. Uh, until such time as uh, Wilbert Robinson took over the team after Ebbets Field had been built. So what was attendance like in Washington Park leading up to uh, Ebbets Field eventually getting built? Uh, well, you know, again, there were a, a number of uh, of lean years in there. The, the attendance would uh, certainly swell on um, – uh, holidays, you didn't have the benefit of uh, Sunday baseball in New York at that time. Um, and it was certainly lagging far behind that of um, uh, of the Giants. And that was always the problem for the Dodgers in those years. The Giants had great teams. Of course, the you know, the Highlanders uh, in you know, Upper Manhattan also didn't feel that good a team during that period either. So the the Giants were the dominant team in New York, and the Dodgers were lucky half the time if they were able to draw a third of what uh, what the Giants were drawing. Now, obviously, it's an evolution. There's not a particular moment that uh, you know you somebody decides, oh, this is what I have to do. But where was where was the 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 time period that Ebbets that Charlie Ebbets said? I need uh, I, I need a great ballpark. He pretty much decided uh, in 1907. That was that was the year when he decided that he was going to make uh, the kind of investment necessary to to build a new ballpark. And um, his uh, quest began with looking for an appropriate site 
and he had considered the Washington Park site. And in fact, many people thought that he would try to buy the Washington Park site. It, it was a leased site, but uh, the the ground at that particular spot in the Gowanus on, on uh, between Third and Fourth Avenues and between First and Third Street was not really well suited for uh, a double deck stand. They would have to do considerable. Uh, engineering work just to prepare the ground for a double deck stand. So uh, Charlie began looking elsewhere, and he knew from his days in government, whether it was the state assembly or the, uh, you know, in the city council, uh, exactly what was being planned in terms of transportation. And he knew that the site that he was interested in ultimately would be a site that would be well served and would develop well in terms of uh, transportation in the borough. Right. So that was uh, that was his main thinking around picking the site that he did happen to pick. Uh, here, this is popped in my head the other day, and you might not uh, you might not know this, but what was the Atlantic Avenue site like in those days? Uh, well, it, the Atlantic Ave site at, at that point certainly was uh, a, a transportation hub or would become a transportation hub as uh, the system was built out just because of the intersection of the two lines. But it wasn't anything like it like it is today. Uh, the development pretty much in, in the early part of the century all stemmed from downtown Brooklyn and along the coastal areas of Brooklyn and then proceeded inward. So... You know, even though that was foreseen as being a site that would be uh, an important site in Brooklyn as a transportation hub, certainly at the outset of the 20th century, it wasn't anything like it would be subsequent to that. Okay, okay. And so in terms of him collecting uh, the pieces, uh, you know, it's one of my favorite stories, and everybody might not know the story. So if we can get a little into Pigtown and, and how Charlie Ebbets collected Ebbets Field site. Well, it was a, a, a pretty interesting tale. He knew that he had to go about acquiring the parcels for the site secretly because this was before the era of eminent domain where uh, essentially parcels could be uh, assembled by a governmental entity, not that a governmental entity would do that at that point in time for uh, a, a private enterprise like a baseball team. So what Charlie did was he turned to one of his oldest friends, uh, Barney York, who was a longtime political operator in New York. He had long time, uh, served as a longtime uh, clerk of the Court of Sessions in New York from 1868 on. He um, uh, had a background in law. He also served <clears throat> as uh, the city of New York's uh, first police commissioner for the greater city of New York in um, uh, 1898. And um, so Ebbets turned to York, and they decided, well, the first thing they needed to do was uh, essentially get a dummy company, a real estate company, to acquire the uh, parcels in secret. And uh, they tried to figure out a name, and they couldn't come up with one, so they opened a dictionary and pointed to the first word that happened to uh, come to the page that uh, they opened, and it was pylon. And uh, they call the the holding company, you know, Pylon Construction. And York, uh, without the knowledge of 
the realtor, without with the, without the realtor whom he hired having any knowledge of Abbott's, York hired uh, a realtor who then essentially had his own people go out and uh, buy parcels for this particular site without York's name coming into mention in any of the discussions. So they were doing everything they could to separate this uh, um, idea that, uh, you know, Charlie Ebbets might be buying up parcels for a ballpark because he knew that if one person found out, it would send the price of any of the remaining parcels through the roof. And in point of fact, he might not be able to uh, acquire them all. So what would they tell them uh, they were buying the land for specifically? Uh, just uh, they, they wouldn't tell them anything. <laughs> so they were, and, and people had a notion that something was up. And in fact, mm -hmm. uh, the the last parcel holder uh, wasn't able to be located for quite some time. So there were great efforts underway to track down uh, this person so that they could uh, essentially put the whole thing together. And when this person found out about the lengths that uh, people were traveling to try to get a hold of him, it essentially shot the price of the parcel up to about four times of what it was worth, probably to you know the vicinity of something like $2,000 from a $500 parcel. What I what I remember about that story, uh, one of my favorite parts about it is that they, he sent people to Europe, he sent people to California, and it turns out the guy's in New Jersey. They found the guy in New Jersey. So there there you have it. Uh, things don't always work out in dramatic fashion uh, sometimes. But it is dramatic that, in fact, they went all over the place trying to find right. this guy. Exactly. And and just uh, ironic, and, and it, it's lovely humor that he was just across the river. <laughs> and across the, two rivers, excuse me. And when they did find that last person and did make the acquisition of that last parcel, they held a press conference or announced plans for a press conference almost immediately. So it was in December of uh, 2011 when that last uh, parcel was uh, purchased, and it was January. You know, it was, it was the beginning of uh, 1912 when they held the big press conference announcing the whole thing. Now, unbeknownst to everyone at this time, Charlie's personal life was in a total shambles. He um, uh, he had separated from his wife Minnie in October of 1911. He was virtually broke. Uh, in fact, he cajoled and wheedled and convinced the other National League owners to actually extend the season until Columbus Day so that he could get one more big gate before the World Series was held. And uh, the writers, who for years had called him Charles Hercules Ebbets, that wasn't his real middle name, by the way. It was actually Henry. Uh, but the, the writers who had always referred to him as Charles Hercules Abbott started calling him Charles Holiday Abbott after he pulled that stunt where he got the season extended. That's that's very that's funny. Uh, so you know what's what's really interesting just hearing about the story is that a good amount of the owners make their money elsewhere, but Charlie Abbott he he basically built himself from the the ground floor of baseball. He was um, th that was his only business. So 
uh, he wasn't a, a beer baron like Rupert. Uh, he, you know, he didn't he didn't have money coming from uh, gambling enterprises. He mm-hmm. he made his dough from baseball, and uh, uh, he did get a share of a family business property at, at Broad Street when it was sold in 1907. He used some of the proceeds from that and scrimped a lot of his other money together uh, till he had about $125,000 saved at that time. And it was with that money that he had intended to uh, to build Ebbets Field. So, um, and it wasn't enough. And uh, the fact that he wasn't in that situation where he became so overextended was what led to him taking on the uh, McKeever brothers as partners in in uh, August of 1912. Uh, before that, there were some other people who had visited from Cincinnati and from other places outside the town, but uh, Charlie had said that he believed in uh, local ownership of a team, and he said at that time that if a man gets into the baseball business uh, for the receipts and simply for the money, he shouldn't be in the business. That, uh, uh, you know, you you had to have a a special commitment to to your community to be in, in the baseball business, and he believed strongly in that, which is quite ironic because ultimately... Uh, who does the franchise wind up falling in the hands of but Walter O'Malley, who had quite a different idea. Exactly, exactly. And, and so b- before we get all the way there, uh, let's finish up with Ebbets Field and uh, the McKeever brothers. When, when it was announced uh, at the beginning of, two, uh, I'm sorry, of 1912, uh, what was the timeline? The timeline was pretty rapid at that moment. It was pretty rapid. Uh they actually were thinking that they could have a ballpark possibly built, um, you know, in time for uh, the anniversary of the Battle of Brooklyn in in August. But that day, of course, came and went. Um, uh, they weren't even able to break ground until March 4th, uh, 1912, as things turned out, and that was a much heralded day in Brooklyn. It became known as a Spade Day in Brooklyn, and Charlie moved forward when the time came to uh, uh, to break ground at the site with uh, a solid silver spade with an ebony handle that had been given him by the Castle Brothers, who were the contractors who were supposed to uh, build the park, and as he was. Um, pushing the spade into the ground, looking for some manageably soft ground uh, with which to uh, uh, make the first thrust somebody in the crowd of people. And there were probably about 100 people or so there. Somebody from the crowd yelled, dig up a couple of new players, Charlie. (laughs) Exactly. Telling you exactly where the Dodgers were and and how much hope they put. uh, All of Brooklyn and and the baseball fans of, of the time put into this new ballpark. Well, Borough President Steers uh, happened to be there on uh, uh, on this occasion, and uh, he reminisced about 
what it was like in 1870 when the Brooklyn Atlantics had their big upset over the Cincinnati Red Stockings in that very famous game that broke the long winning streak of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. He recalled looking through a knothole to watch that game, and uh, he waxed philosophically about how he thought Ebbets was doing a great thing for Brooklyn and um, essentially preparing... Uh, uh, in preparing a stadium that would rightfully take Brooklyn to the top of the baseball world. And mm -hmm. uh, that, of course, led to uh, a rousing cheer, which uh, shortly thereafter was followed by uh, three cheers for Charlie Abbott's. To digress a bit, that was the first extra inning game, am I correct? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Atlantic game. The, the Atlantic uh, seventy game. Yeah, it, it could have been called a tie. Um but the the Red Stockings wanted a resolution to the game, uh, undoubtedly convinced that they would prevail, but it didn't quite work out that way. Nope. And they took the lead, too, uh, if I remember my readings correctly. And then they took the lead, went to the bottom half, and the Atlantic scored two. It's um, uh, before it got dark, so... So it was, uh, yeah, one of those great baseball days that they wound up talking about in Brooklyn for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, it still gets mentioned in in the literature, but it also points up uh, the great connection between Brooklyn and baseball. Because if you go back to when Charlie was born, there were only uh, 25 amateur teams in Manhattan. In Brooklyn, there were 75. People were playing baseball all over the place in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And so, speaking of, of baseball being played, uh, when it was first opened, the Phillies beat the uh, the, the Dodgers one to nothing. But um, I think more heralded in terms of the moment at the time was the the exhibition game between the newly named Yankees uh, and and the Dodgers. And uh, before we jump all the way to 1925 and Charlie's death, let's talk briefly about that game. Well, it was um, it, the the National League opening turned out to be a very cold and miserable day. It was prefaced the first game, the exhibition game, uh, was uh, a wonderful sunny day, and uh, it turned out to be a great day because Brooklyn wound up prevailing over the Yankees uh, with Casey Stengel of all people, the new Dodger outfielder, hitting a home run inside the park. <laughs> And he had come up in uh, 1912 as this uh, talked-about prospect. Right. Uh, had a great day at Washington Park uh, in September of 1912, and it was followed by a rainout, which gave the sports writers an, another day to write about uh, this new young phenom, uh, Casey Stengel. So uh, he had been ballyhooed at the end of the 1912 season, and his performance, of course, in that uh, exhibition game in 1913 allowed him to solidify his budding reputation even further. Exactly. Uh, so two pennants later in 1916 and 1920, unfortunately no World Series win, uh, Charlie Ebbets unfortunately died in 1925. Uh, after that, there was a big, big battle between the family members. Let's get a little bit into that before we go. Well, it's, um, you know, the the beginning of the Ebbets-McKeever Ebbets schism really started with uh, Charles Jr. because uh, both Ed and Steve McKeever 
throughout their lives had a very high uh, regard for uh, Charlie Sr. Charlie Jr., on the other hand, had problems with alcohol that seemed to get worse and worse. And uh, this culminated with a day in uh, July of uh, 1923, July 7th to be exact, where Steve McKeever actually threw Charlie Ebbets Jr. out of the ballpark. Um, and, and mind you, Steve McKeever, of course, was a much older man at that point. Um, but... Um, uh, they, the McKeevers also demanded that Charlie be dismissed from his uh, uh, his role with the team as uh, uh, a team secretary, and uh, it, it created a lot of tension for Charlie. And Charlie was Charlie Senior, that is, and Charlie Senior was really not a well man at that point. Uh, beginning in 1920, after the pennant celebration, he began to suffer headaches. Uh, it was actually Tic de la Rue, which uh, is an affliction that had uh, affected some other Ebbets descendants subsequently, but it caused this buzzing in his head that made him quite uncomfortable. And he even said around that time that he would be willing to sell the team for the right price. Nobody, of course, believed it. Um, and, you know, by 1924, the team was making serious money. They had... Uh, uh, a very good pennant run, even though they didn't win in 1924, and uh, Charlie was well fixed, but his health was still not good. And in April of uh, uh, 1925, he he died at the old Waldorf Astoria, which was at that time on 34th and 5th, and the word spread through New York like a flash fire. Uh, at his funeral. Um, uh, it was a cold and rainy day, and um, uh, Ed McKeever, Steve's brother, caught cold. And Ed was much different than Steve. He was quiet. Steve was ebullient. And uh, Ed McKeever, who'd never been sick in his life, died 10 days later from pneumonia. And that left Steve McKeever, who did not get along well with uh, uh, Charles Jr., and uh, uh Essentially, the Ebbets and, and McKeever interests were, from that point forward, pretty much at loggerheads. And so what happened after that uh, in regards to the Ebbets shares? Well, the um, what essentially what happened was uh, uh, the team fell into... Uh, sort of fell into a period where... Uh, no decision could be made. Uh, and uh, Steve McKeever became more and more disaffected with uh, Wilbert Robinson as manager. And uh, the Ebbets interests wanted Robinson to continue. The team's fortunes didn't uh, uh, gel at all. And there had been plans to expand Ebbets Field that were in Steve McKeever's roll top desk from something like, oh, I guess, uh, you know, 1927 on, and there could be no decision that was made about that because no one could agree on anything. And then finally, when they did make plans to go ahead with expanding the ballpark in, in 1930, 
uh, in time for the 1931 season. They did so at exactly the wrong time because it was the onset of the Great Depression. So they wound up taking a note to expand the stands, big capital improvement at the ballpark at a time when revenues would precipitously decline, which is what happened. And essentially the team wound up going into uh, receivership, uh, so much so that at, at one point in 1936, uh, uh, Charlie's daughter, May, uh, wound up applying for uh, welfare, and uh, uh, when her caseworker looked at this, he said, "You know, you're you're an heir to uh, the Ebbets Fortune and the Dodgers." And as she said, "Well, unfortunately, I can't eat the benches at Ebbets Field." That's right, exactly. <laughs> and and her husband, ironically, was uh, Leon Cador, who was the uh, pitcher who pitched uh, for the Dodgers in that legendary 26-inning uh, game against the uh, Braves that ended in a 1-1 tie. And both he and uh, uh, the Braves pitcher, uh, Joe Oshker, uh, pitched all 26 innings, and quite understandably, Leon Cador was never the same pitcher again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so... The, the Ebbets. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. No. You were saying about the Ebbets shares. About the Ebbets uh, shares. They they went into uh, court, uh, which eventually culminated in them being sold. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Let, before we go, let's get into let's get into that because I know they they wound up in the hands eventually of Branch Rickey, if I'm correct. Well, the way the way the shares the Ebbets shares actually um, were not sold until. Um, 1947. Okay. The um, uh, the first block of shares to be sold were uh, half of the McKeever shares, the shares that weren't held on to by uh, uh, by Deary. Well, Deary Mulvey held on to her shares. Uh, Steve's daughter. So, you know the the Ed McKeever shares, a 25% share of the ball club was uh, sold in October of 1944 for um, $833,000. Um, the uh, Ebbets, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they were, they were sold for $250,000, which would have been uh, $83,333 for each of the three uh, individuals who who bought the shares at that point in time. The three individuals who bought the shares at that point in time were Walter O'Malley, who had been made to counsel the ball club in uh, 1942, uh, Branch Rickey, and uh, the third party was Andrew Schmitz, who was uh, an insurance man. Um, subsequently, his shares would be picked up by uh, uh, John L. Smith of Pfizer in a transaction in uh, in 1945. So so $250,000 for 25 percent in October of 1944, 858,000 for the uh, 50 percent uh, EBIT shares in 1947. 
uh, and that is split up amongst the uh, the three parties: uh, O'Malley, uh, John L. Smith, and and Branch Rickey at that point, with Rickey being in charge of running the team as managing partner. Uh, and that left the 25% uh, share in the hands of uh, uh, of uh, Deary Mulvey. Right. Uh, so that's how things that's how things proceeded uh, until 1950, when it was uh, O'Malley had managed to uh, manipulate John Smith's widow to sort of side with him in not renewing Branch Rickey's uh, uh, managing partnership going forward, uh, thus ensuring that um, at least 50% of the shares were in O'Malley's corner. And Rickey, not having any more money to borrow on and not having a lot of leverage, uh, ultimately decides to sell out. There's a provision, though, uh, in the contract between the the three partners that uh, if anyone decides to sell, they have to sell to the other partners. But if uh, un- unless they get a better offer, at which point uh, the other partners need to match that offer. So what Ricky did, much to O'Malley's chagrin, was he managed uh, through the intercession of John Galbraith of the Pirates. Uh, to get Zeckendorf, the real estate mogul, to bid a million dollars for uh, Ricky's 25% share. So this was a 25% uh, share, essentially, that had been uh, brokered with, uh, you know, the 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 250,000 split three ways and then the 858,000 split three ways in 1944 and uh 47 and now Ricky is getting uh a million dollars for just his uh for for his share for his 25% share since Mulvey's were holding on to 25% uh just a few years later that gained him O'Malley's enmity forever after right and I think that's where we're going to stop. And we're going to take the next time you're on, we're going to take it from there and talk a little bit more about Walter O'Malley, Branch Rickey, and how everything uh, came to fruition in the 40s and 50s. Bob, I appreciate you very much coming on and enlightening us to the Ebbets family and their plight. No, thanks, Sam. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. That's our show, everybody. Uh, join us on Friday when Dodgers team historian Mark Langell joins us once more. Take care. <laughs>